Oopsla podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. Ladies and gentlemen, the general chair of Oopsla 2007, Richard Gabriel. In 1995, I returned to school to try to earn an MFA in creative writing, in poetry actually, from a small college in the mountains of North Carolina. The school is called Warren Wilson College. Being a science-type guy with no literature background and only about 50 poems behind me, I felt this was a task whose best outcome might best be described in a Samuel Johnsonian sense like this. Sir... Gabriel's writing poetry is like a dog's walking on his hind legs. It is not done well, but you are surprised to find it done at all. (laughs) Lest you think this is false modesty, after my second semester, my teacher, Stephen Dobbins, wrote this evaluation. Mr. Gabriel did a great amount of reading and a great amount of writing and revising. He beat his head against the subject of poetry about as well as a person can beat it. He is, however, relatively new to the subject, and there are gaps in his reading and in his understanding. At times I felt he read a poem as one might read an essay. At times I felt he misunderstood the idea of metaphor. At times I felt he had no clear idea of the degree of understanding that one hopes to find in a reader. But... He read a lot and wrote a lot, and I felt that his understanding grew and that his work got better. He has the best computer skills of any student with whom I have ever worked. (laughs) Against this backdrop, we find Peter Turchi. Pete was and is the director of the MFA program at Warren Wilson College. His job was to round up poets willing to try to teach me to walk on my hind legs. His job, in fact, was to make sure I graduated happily because while most students in the program are real writers who, once they graduate, will go on to be starving writers, those really good computer skills meant maybe I could be counted on to make continued alumni contributions. (laughs) Pete is a fiction writer, the author of four books, a novel called The Girls Next Door, a collection of stories called Magician, a book of nonfiction with Barry Clifford called The Pirate Prince and Maps of the Imagination, The Writer as Cartographer. He has also co-edited a collection of essays called Bringing the Devil to His Knees, The Craft of Fiction and the Writing Life, and a fiction anthology called The Story Behind the Story. But he's here to speak about Maps of the Imagination, which is about the creative act, particularly the writer's creative act viewed through the lens of the cartographer. Of course, this is probably a metaphor, and that means I'm not too sure about how this writer-cartographer thing works. But Peter is here to talk about it so he can straighten us out. Let's warmly welcome my good friend and teacher, Peter Turchi. Well, it's true. I come to you from another world. I haven't stepped out of Second Life, but I might as well have. I don't do the sort of work you do. I don't even know all the kinds of work you do, and what little I do know, I don't understand. 
Last night at the reception, I attempted to ask someone a question about the display he was uh, escorting, and he looked at me very kindly as if I were some sort of backward child. I moved on to another conversation where someone asked someone else if he had read something, and he replied, I don't really read books. And then I walked back to the hotel with a very pleasant person who said, oh yeah, you're the pen to paper guy. (laughs) So I realized I'm here at your conference to represent the 18th century. (laughs) I only wish I had worn my buckskin suit this morning. Uh, Even so, I'm immediately inclined toward any organization bold enough to take for its name an acronym that sounds like like, like the expression of someone who just made a mistake but is not terribly worried about it. Oopsla. Oopsla happens. And then we have onward. Oopsla. Onward. It sounds like some sort of command by that famous Canadian military tactician, Dudley Do-Right. I'm also intrigued by any organization that would place in a position of any responsibility my former student, fellow writer, colleague, and now host, Dick Gabriel, who I first met, as he said, when he decided to become a graduate student in creative writing, something I actually admire him for, and who showed up at his first MFA residency in poetry wearing a shirt that said, I started a multi-million dollar software company and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. As if that and the ponytail he sported then weren't enough to get him noticed, there was his announcement that he intended to write a poem a day, more or less forever, a plan he's made good on. And there were his analyses of poems, which were diagrammed with a formal beauty and precision achievable only by someone who truly knew his way around his software, as Stephen Dobbins noticed. You may be surprised to hear this, but a lot of the poets I work with are not particularly knowledgeable about their software. Several of them aren't entirely sure if the computer they use is a desktop or a laptop. But Dick assures me all of you are deeply knowledgeable about poetry and that you are eagerly looking forward to this 90-minute celebration of the lesser work of T.S. Eliot. All right, my role, I believe, is to offer an outsider's perspective, and I'm about as far outside the world of object-oriented programming, etc., as a man alive in the 21st century can be. The last computer program I wrote over 25 years ago was for Magic Squares. It involved a lot of punch cards. I wrote it in Fortran. (laughs) I've (laughs) I've never taken part in a teleconference. I have never so much as held a Blackberry. I'm a writer of fiction and nonfiction and a teacher of writing. What you and I have in common is that we are all engaged in the ongoing task of creating something new. For writers, this comes out of the deep sense that there are things that need to be said or expressed that haven't yet been said or expressed satisfactorily or fully considered and examined, and out of the writer's desire to understand himself, others, the world around him, or something about the interrelation of those three. For designers and programmers, I suspect that there are some more practical reasons for creating something new. After all, you get to deal with applications, a word that never comes up among poets or fiction writers, and that's their job hunting. There are things that need to be done, and you either know or sense they can be done better. Or, still more exciting, there are things none of us knows needs to be done, or can be done, so you're inventing solutions for problems we haven't yet perceived. You're creating new opportunities, new ways of handling information, and new ways of understanding. Last night, I saw and overheard uh, several poster presentations that were clearly designed to respond to a perceived need or problem. And I appreciate the fact that several people posted next to their displays a sign saying something like, Feedback Appreciated. 
I can only hope to live long enough to attend a poetry reading at which the poet says, I honestly want to know what you think about this. <laughs> Someday, showing your work to people feels more or less like wearing a sign that says, kick me. Something else I appreciate about what I've seen so far, it seems clear that Uppsala is an unusual combination of students, academics, and professionals. Watt might very well have its fair share of people who don't play well with others. We've got, you know, Dick as one example. It's heartening to see such a spirited mix, a place where virtual newcomers, well, actual virtual newcomers, can benefit from the voices of experience and even from what more than one person yesterday called gurus. Our point in common may be, as one of you suggested last night, that we both work in code, but my topic nonetheless is the struggle to find something new while remaining in communication with readers, in my world, with users, with everything that's come before us. And so, while I know this is bad behavior for a guest to start the day by saying something unpleasant, I have disheartening information to report. There is nothing new to discover. Don't take it from me. Many people have said it. What do the novels and poems of today have to offer, asked Arthur Crystal in Harper's Magazine a few years ago, other than implicit commentary on their antecedents? Tom, but Thomas Hardy had already said that in 1920. All we can do is to write on the old themes and the old styles, but try to do a little better than those who went before us. Although Lord Byron had already said in 1807, to produce anything new in an age so fertile in rhyme would be a Herculean task, as every subject has already been treated to its utmost extent. And nearly 2,300 years before Byron, Plato had proclaimed, we have learned everything there is to learn. Seeking and learning is all remembrance. Ecclesiastes famously puts it, what has been is what will be, and what has been is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, we all understand that feeling, Some days it feels as if the newspaper is filled with variations of the same stories we've read before. The names of the politicians change, the scores change, but all the news, good and bad, seems familiar. And recognizing patterns and repetition is essential. It's true, if it's true that history repeats itself, we want to be prepared. But you and I are the kind of ornery people who, despite Byron, despite Plato, despite Ecclesiastes, insist on searching for the new. I'm going to take some of my examples this morning from writing, but I don't mean to imply that writers have any sort of exclusive claim to discovery. Everything I say, I tell you in the belief, or at least the hope, that it applies to what you do. For variety, I'll also give you some examples from cartography, about which I know nothing. But first, a brief story. Once upon a time, well, three years ago, I was traveling around the U.S. giving readings from maps of the imagination, and one day I found myself, found myself at my destination a few hours early. I'd tell you the name of the city, but I can't remember which one it was, which may be part of the problem. Anyway, I saw a sign for a visitor's information center pulled in, and before I could ask for directions to the bookstore I needed to find, I saw right there on the counter a poster with my face on it advertising my reading. Now, this is the sort of thing that may happen to you all the time, but I am no Stephen King or Toni Morrison. So standing in that visitor center, I confess, I felt a little thrill. As a result, in a rare act of extroversion channeled from my father, a traveling salesman who knew no strangers, in a very jolly tone, I said to the woman behind the counter, anything interesting going on in town tonight? Tonight, the woman said, not that I know of. 
To make matters worse, she called back to her colleague, Mary Beth, do you know of anything going on in town that might interest this young man? Mary Beth shook her head and so returned my ego to its normal state. (laughs) The first woman continued, now next weekend they're putting on that Anne Frank play over at the high school. How long are you going to be in town? Not very long, I told her. And before my mood got any worse, maybe I could just get directions to, and I told her the name of the bookstore. She gave me the directions, which seemed unnecessarily complicated, and ended with words I have from years of experience come to recognize as ominous. You can't miss it. Oh, I can miss it, I told her. Do you have a map? She gave me one, but it was clear she was a little embarrassed for me. After she pointed out the turn, she said, I don't know how anyone can get lost. I assumed she was kidding. How can that happen, she said. When my children were little, I took them on long walks into the woods and talked to them about what they saw, about the sun and the shadows and how they moved and the moss on the trees. Then I started taking them farther out and I'd say, okay, now you get us home. There's no excuse for being lost. I asked her how many children she had. She said three. When you started out, I mean. (laughs) I could see that Mary Beth was on my side. Well, thanks for the directions, I told the woman who had never been lost. You're welcome, she said, and good luck with your talk tonight. (laughs) Now, here's the irony. While I hate to be lost geographically, I'm one of those people who, you know, clutches directions from MapQuest. I pick up a map everywhere I go. While I hate to be lost geographically, as a writer, I deliberately enter terra incognita, unknown territory. I'm not alone in this. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, The writer is an explorer. Every step is an advance into new land. Graham Greene wrote, If this book of mine fails to take a straight course, it's because I'm lost in a strange region. I have no map. Octavio Paz wrote, Tomorrow we shall have to invent once more the reality of this world. When we're writing, or at least in early drafts, we get depressed when we can see exactly where we are and where we're going. Our job is to discover something, and no one else can tell us how to get there. We don't even know exactly what we're looking for. Not only can we not ask for directions, but there's no map to where we're headed, because the only reason we're writing is that no map we know of exists to take a reader to precisely that place, wherever it is. When it comes to the sort of creation or discovery all of us here do, to refuse to allow yourself to get lost is a failure of imagination. If we didn't care where we were or where we went, it wouldn't make any difference that we're lost. If we didn't care where we were or where we went, it wouldn't make any difference that we're lost. In fact, you might argue if we don't care where we are, we can never be lost. To be lost is to want to be somewhere. Most often, we want to be somewhere we haven't been before, possibly even somewhere we think no one has ever been. The writer, the designer, the programmer are all explorers in the sense that we want to be somewhere we aren't, and we don't know exactly where that is. We want to be lost, at least for a while. Eventually, we want to and need to know where we've gotten ourselves, but what I'd like to go back and tell that woman in the visitor center, but what I'll tell you instead, since I can't find her, is that there is virtue in getting lost. I only have a few things to say this morning, and that's the first. To fail to get lost is a failure of imagination. The second is, getting lost can be hard to do and requires preparation. I actually despise bullet points, but I know it takes a very large font to get Dick's attention. (laughs) Getting lost is a source of tension, the tension between the familiar and the unknown, between our desire and the frustration of our desire. 
That's why when we got to the airport here, the first thing waiting for us foreigners once we cleared customs was a welcome package featuring a map. The good people of Montreal know that what we want more than anything is to find our way to where we want to go. What we fear is being lost. They're so worried about us that they actually put lines on the floor to show us where to walk. And on the many large, prominently displayed maps of the airport itself, they were careful to include an arrow labeled Vuzetesi. And knowing how terrified people from the U.S. are of any language other than English, added underneath that familiar paradox, you are here. Always reassuring, never true. (laughs) Thus reassured that we are not lost, we can collect our bags, head out to the taxi stand, and begin spending money. To get lost, we need either to reject that assertion, you are here, or we need to refuse to follow the lines on the floor, though that might very well mean defying customs or crossing some hostile borders. In our own eyes, at least, we are off the map. The excitement of potential discovery is accompanied by anxiety, despair, caution perhaps, perhaps boldness, and always the risk of failure. Failure can take the form of our becoming hopelessly lost or pointlessly lost or not finding what we came for, though that last is sometimes happily accompanied by the discovery of something we didn't anticipate, couldn't even imagine before we found it. We strike out for what we believe to be uncharted waters only to find ourselves sailing in someone else's bathtub. You know the feeling. Some days it seems there's nothing new to discover but the limitations of our own experience and understanding. Writing is often discussed as two separate acts, though in practice they overlap, intermingle, and impersonate each other. They differ in emphasis, but are by no means merely sequential. If we do them well, both result in discovery. One is the act of exploration, some combination of premeditated searching and undisciplined, perhaps only partly conscious rambling. This includes scribbling notes, considering potential lines, scenes, and images, inventing characters, even writing drafts. History tells us exploration is assertive action in the face of uncertain assumptions, often involving false starts, missteps, and surprises, all familiar parts of a writer's work. If we persist, we discover our story or poem or novel within the world of that story. The other act of writing or of creation we might call presentation, Applying knowledge, skill, and talent, we create a document meant to communicate with and have an effect on others. The purpose of a story is to create the context for and lead the reader on a journey, or in the case of a new application, to direct and enable a user. All of that is to say, at some point we turn from the role of explorer to take on that of God. The path toward creation is littered with failures. We begin, we make a wrong turn, we reach a dead end. We begin again, only to find we've made a circle. Our expedition hasn't left sight of camp. Another time, we realize we're starting from the wrong place. We can't get there where we think we want to go from here. Eventually, we find our story, not despite failed efforts to find the story, but through those efforts. Without our false starts, we would have gotten nowhere at all. Reginald Gibbons has said, writing delivers us into discoveries of what till we had formed some way to articulate it in language, had remained unformed, had been unknown to us. The articulation becomes the knowing. The knowing comes out of the process, and it refuels a further effort at articulation. A sense of ecstatic fruitfulness, of rich discoveries, of voyaging, comes to us in the exhilarating moments of being in our work in progress. At least, that's how it feels on good days. On the bad days, it seems we're in the dark. We lack the vision and the tools to do what we hope to do. In the early 1960s, James Lord agreed to pose for Alberto Giacometti for a single afternoon for a sketch. 
The sketch became a painting, and the session went on for 18 days. Lourdes kept a record of Giacometti's process, which was cyclical. Perhaps you know someone who works like this. Giacometti would stall, sometimes for hours before beginning to work. When he finally sat down, he would either despair over his inability to do work or make faint optimistic noises. Before long, his tune would shift from optimism to despair or from despair to talk of suicide. Every day, he would erase or paint over the previous day's work. Typically, he would continue until the studio was nearly dark. Typically, at the end of the day, he would deem the work a failure. James Lord's book about those days, A Giacometti Portrait, is perversely heartening. Sometime when you think things aren't going well, give it a look. No matter how frustrated or blocked you may feel, by the time you've avoided still more work by reading about Giacometti's elaborate strategies for procrastination and self-destruction, you'll feel productive and well-adjusted by comparison. (laughs) But I recommend it for other reasons. At one point, Lord recounts the following conversation. I said, Lord said, It's difficult for me to imagine how things must appear to you. That's exactly what I'm trying to do, he said, to show how things appear to me. But what, I asked, is the relationship between your vision, the way things appear to you, and the technique that you have at your disposal to translate that vision into something which is visible to others? That's the whole drama, he said. I don't have such a technique. Having the technique, the means of getting from here to there, is always the issue. We are always developing, testing, and refining the techniques we use to convey our vision, our discoveries, whether they be methods of representing a human being's consciousness in words, see Joyce's Ulysses, or methods of conveying emotion of visual images through color and light, see the French Impressionists, or whether it be seeing into the universe, see the Hubble telescope and the use of radio waves. When we recognize shortcomings in our tools and techniques, we work to improve them. The more difficult challenge can be transcending a tool, an approach, or result that seems reasonably good, good enough. As you know, some of the most useful guides for anyone setting out on this journey are here in this room, others in your field, teachers, wily veterans, even your peers. Feedback appreciated, you say, which translates as, help guide me. At the same time, the desire to create something new requires us to resist and argue against those influences. The poet Tony Hoagland writes, The making of poems is so mysteriously tied up with not knowing that in some sense the poet is a perpetual amateur, a stranger to the art, subject to ineptitude, failure, falseness, mediocrity, and repetitiveness. Even to remember what a poem is seems impossible for a poet. That last line might seem like a joke, but Hoagland's serious. While writing, it's difficult to reconcile our sense of what a poem or story is or should be with our desire to say something new, and so to break away from the very thing we recognize. It's much easier for someone not concerned with making poems to say what a poem is. For a poet, the notion of a poem must be constantly open to interrogation. To fully enter your work beyond the level of a reader or user to the level of a creator is to embrace the unknown. Those statements I cited earlier about possibility being exhausted are the expressions of frustration sometimes and pride or satisfaction other times. One man runs a mile in four minutes or another hits 60 home runs in a season or another presents us with the iPod or Google and in the exhilaration of the moment some say, it is unthinkable that anyone will ever do better. Galileo. Galileo, who saw things no man had ever seen before, thanks in part to the improvements he made to a pre-existing tool, the telescope, thanks in part to his being open to seeing things no one had even imagined existed. 
Galileo, who should have known better, said, It was granted to me alone to discover all the new phenomena in the sky and nothing to anybody else. And it may be unthinkable, unimaginable, at least to some people, or for a while. But to fail to imagine the new is to fail to dream new dreams. And we are all well aware, thanks to global warming, drought, poverty, AIDS, the vulnerability of the food supply, the shortages of drinking water, contamination of the oceans, and on and on and on. We are well aware that our survival depends on our ability to imagine new solutions, new ways of living, new ways of working, new ways of understanding the world. Our belief that we've seen and done everything possible is usually an expression of the limits of our tools or methods. A writer I know who is also a theoretical physicist told me that what he most enjoys is devising and then creating the tools he needs. To make a novel measurement, he told me, requires a novel instrument. Another astronomer and telescope maker, William Herschel, most famous for discovering Uranus, once explained how, despite being an amateur, he was able to see things others had not. When, in the course of time, I took up astronomy, I determined to accept nothing on faith but to see with my own eyes everything which others had seen before me. Seeing is in some respects an art which must be learnt. To make a person see with such power is nearly the same as if I were asked to make him play one of Handel's fugues upon the organ. Many a night I have been practicing to see, and it would be strange if one did not acquire a certain dexterity by such constant practice. Alberto Giacometti put it this way, Sometimes it's very tempting to be satisfied with what's easy, particularly if people tell you it's good. What's essential is to work without any preconception whatever, without knowing in advance what the picture is going to look like. It is very, very important to avoid all preconception, to try to see only what exists. To the extent that a map is a presentation of organized information, a map means to tell us something we don't know or to tell us what we do know in some new way. Maps suggest explanations, and while those explanations may reassure us, they also inspire us to ask more questions, to consider other possibilities. To ask for a map is to say, tell me a story. There's a beautiful book, maybe some of you know, called The Atlas of Cyberspace. It's my great disappointment that I'm not able to present you with some of the images from it here today. The Atlas of Cyberspace is, to some extent, an historical atlas of various depictions of communication systems. It starts with telegraph lines and telephone lines and then computer networks. But it's also a collection of the wildly diverse ways in which various cartographers, scientists, and artists have attempted to visually represent the kinds of connections we make in and the movement of information through cyberspace. Some of them are scientific, others are highly impressionistic. If I make a map for you, I'm saying, let me tell you a story. This map tells at least a few stories. This is a novelty, an image that served several purposes back in 1896. It was a newspaper advertisement paid for by the Knuckles Meatpacking Company. It was a political cartoon advocating free and unlimited silver coinage, a departure from the gold standard to lift the country out of financial depression. And it adds a few additional points about the wealth of farm states and the number of electoral votes possessed by states in favor of a silver standard. The gold states are tucked away in the elitist northeast, so the caption reads, Will the tail wag the dog, or the dog wag the tail? It might seem just as obvious that this map leads us to consider what we know in a new way. I picked this up in Australia, where people are very fond of it. There's no reason, of course, for this to be called the upside-down map, just because it's oriented to the south. North is not up, although I thought so for a long time. 
It's just a convention to orient maps this way. Neither is there any reason for us to put, as so many of us do, the United States in the middle of our maps. And so this serves as a reminder of our own biases and of our tendency and desire to see the world from our own perspective. I believe a few centuries ago it was the mayor of Venice who looked at a map and said, why is the rest of the world so large and Venice so small? He wanted Venice to be the map. An interesting secondary effect of this map is to make Western Europe seem tremendously far from the U.S., while Alaska and Russia are near neighbors. After a while, seeing the world a certain way makes us start to think of it that way, which is to say our very habits of seeing tend to shape and limit what we see. Surely, if every school child in the United States looked at this map every day, their sense of the relative importance of their country, and for that matter of Canada, which is certainly a major player over here in pink, would be very different. Ironically, I'm not sure this alone would put Australia at the center of the world, but you never know. Susan Shulton has pointed out that World War II changed the way people at home in the United States saw the world. She says, at three pivotal moments in the war, after the German invasion of Poland, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the assault on Normandy, Americans bought in a matter of hours what in peacetime would have been a year's supply of maps and atlases. The maps Americans bought showed them a world that would have been utterly unfamiliar a decade earlier. Gone was Mercator's ordered plane, which had comfortably distanced Americans from Europe and Asia. The global nature of the war, together with the advent of aviation, completely reconfigured the look and shape of the world on a map. Americans now poured over maps that showed the world as a sphere, or that placed the North Pole at the center, projections and perspectives that would otherwise have been familiar only to cartographers. These new maps emphasized America's proximity to Europe and Asia over the North Pole and across the oceans, shaking the nation's well-developed sense of isolation. After 9-11, people in the U.S. and perhaps around the world got daily lessons in the geography of Afghanistan. Since then, we've become acquainted with the major cities of Iran and Iraq, even neighborhoods within Baghdad. How we see depends, in part, on what we want to see. The poet Heather McHugh says, we are creatures of habit. Given a blank, we can't help trying to fill it in along lines of customary seeing or saying. But the best poetic lines undermine those habits, break the pre off the dictable, unsettle the suburbs of your routine sentiments, and rattle the tracks of your trains of thought. Here, then, is the strangest map of all that I've brought today. Can anyone tell what this is a map of? Anybody at all? No? I know a lot of people are from far off. What's it? Australia? Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> How do you know that it's a map of the United States? The shape of it is, is uh, certainly familiar. Has anybody here seen this thing? Anybody, here, anybody Mountain climbers, for instance? Gone up and looked back? Seen this? Nobody at all. Sometimes people say astronauts might have seen this thing. But of course, I mean, forget the fact for the moment that this is a two-dimensional representation of the, of the part of the uh, country we see here. Uh, obviously, it's color-coded. Obviously, at some point, even an astronaut uh, would have had his view obscured by clouds. If you could see this uh, in its large form, it's a map by Raven Maps meant to be hung on an office wall. But even if you could see a closer reproduction of it, you'd see that the outlines of the states are on it and uh, major cities are marked. Uh, it is a representation of something that exists, but uh, what it depicts uh, does not exist. 
And I point this out, even though it may be obvious to you, because people often make the mistake of calling this map or maps that look like it realistic or accurate when it is neither of those things. I don't mean any of the information on the map is wrong, but the landmass we call the contiguous United States certainly doesn't look like this ever. Like all maps of any part of the Earth, it's based on a projection or distortion formula, and it's designed at least in part as a work of art. This map is an intellectual construct, and our agreement that it is a map of the United States is, as William Gibson said of cyberspace, a consensus hallucination. In some ways, this thing we're looking at doesn't exist. We can't touch it or see it, but we can use it and even depend on it. There are other strange conventions about this map, of course. Uh, Mexico and Canada, you may have noticed, uh, have been disappeared, as have been the oceans. Alaska and Hawaii don't appear, not because this isn't a politically defined map, but because it's inconvenient to include them. Too bad if you're Alaskan or Hawaiian. But it would be awkward to include them here. Cartographers are always struggling uh, with the limitations of their tools and devices in this way. The map is a useful illustration of the deep foundations of our conventions. To use a map, there's no need, or relatively little need, to be aware of those conventions, and certainly no need to question them. To make a map, we need to constantly remind ourselves that conventions are simply familiar and sometimes useful ways of proceeding, and that we must constantly interrogate them. In fiction writing, there are any number of invisible conventions of presentation, starting with the conventions of the writer's language. In English, that we write from left to right, we capitalize proper nouns, indent new paragraphs. To conventions of prose fiction, including putting quotations around dialogue, starting a new paragraph when there's a change of speaker. To conventions of the dominant mode, which for nearly a century and a half has been realism. Of course, there have been many kinds of fiction written around the world in the past 150 years, but the conventions of realism have become, through familiarity, the most transparent and so the most difficult for a writer to recognize. In realistic fiction, characters are supposed to sound true to life, but we nearly always edit their speech to avoid the ums and errs and stutters and false starts that are a common part of actual speech. We presume to tell about people's lives, but we rarely write about what they eat or about the time they spend brushing their teeth or paying their bills or deciding what to give their parents for their birthdays. The world of realistic fiction is skewed toward love and death, desire and ambition, toward failure and occasionally success. I don't mean to sound critical of realism. I write realistic fiction myself. And that's exactly why I feel obliged to be aware of its tendencies, biases, and shortcomings. In a famous essay, Mark Twain wrote about what he called James Fenimore Cooper's literary offenses. Cooper was writing in the romantic tradition. Twain was a realist. In the essay, Twain makes great fun of the fact that in Cooper's leather-socking tales, his hero, Natty Bumpo, can shoot a bullet into the hole made by a previous bullet from some great distance, and he can see that he did it from a great distance. But he also makes fun of a description of a group of Indians who climb trees beside a river and drop onto a flatboat because, as Twain goes to some length to explain, given the width of the river and the width of the boat, the Indians could have stepped onto the boat without getting their feet wet. Again and again in his essay, Mark Twain says, Fenimore Cooper gets it wrong, and it's important to get the details right. Now, when I was an undergraduate, I thought that was a brilliant essay. I had no patience for Fenimore Cooper's books, and I admired Mark Twain and was happy to join the mockery. Only much later did I realize that Twain wasn't arguing for something right against something wrong, although that's what he thought he was doing, but he was arguing for one aesthetic over another. This is no doubt obvious to you, and it probably should have been obvious to me. After all, in seventh grade, when I made the mistake of telling my friend Richard Sorrell that I liked the music man, Richard told me it was stupid to watch musicals because there is no way everyone in the same town would know the lyrics to all the same songs. 
And even then, I knew he was missing the point. But the dominant mode is always the hardest one to see clearly. In visual art, we're used to seeing things in perspective in realism. And somewhere we were probably taught to draw a road so the two sides meet in the distance and to create a vanishing point for the tops and bottoms of the buildings in our drawing because that makes it realistic. But when we walk on roads, the two sides never meet in a point, and both sides of a rectangular building are the same height. The drawing that may have earned us an A for its accuracy and realism was in fact a distortion, an illusion. I don't mean to say we shouldn't practice creating things in the dominant mode, whether that's a particular language or a design system, only that if we're going to work in the dominant mode, we need to work especially hard to remain aware of its conventions and distortions. As a writer, to lose track of the distinction between realism and reality is to lose track of the distinction between art and life. Other obstacles to our becoming good and properly lost include our often misguided belief in comprehensiveness, objectivity, and accuracy. Man has always been inclined toward the comprehensive, toward trying to collect everything we know, whether that's in the Great Library of Alexandria, the Library of Congress, or Google trying to scan the contents of every book. Google Earth, Wikipedia, even the web itself is an attempt to gather all our knowledge together, and there are good reasons for doing that, but there's also a serious danger in trying to include everything. For a long time, maps were filled with decorations, and those decorations weren't necessarily benign. Maps that depicted grotesque creatures in Africa, for instance, encouraged explorers to see whatever they found there as dangerous, inhuman, and uncivilized, in need of conquering or destruction. In the 18th century, a French cartographer, Jean-Baptiste Bourgnon d'Anvie, said that decorations should be removed, that the unknown should be represented by blank space. To destroy false notions without even going any further, he said, is one of the ways to advance knowledge. Thanks to him and his colleagues, blanks on maps began to give authority to awe on the map that was unblank. Many people think that everything on the earth has been mapped, but in fact there are plenty of places and things that remain difficult to map, and every map goes out of date the moment it is made. But even if we could map everything and include everything, we might not have what we hoped we'd have. Here's a famous imagined scenario from Jorge Luis Borges, from his Universal History of Infamy. In that empire, the craft of cartography attained such perfection that the map of a single province covered the space of an entire city, and the map of the empire itself an entire province. In the course of time, these extensive maps were found somehow wanting, and so the College of Cartographers evolved a map of the empire that was the same scale of the empire and that co coincided with it point for point. Well, try putting that in your glove compartment. Even that map wouldn't include sounds or smells or a depiction of how land use changed over time, other things we'd want to include on our ideally comprehensive map. But is comprehension really the ideal? Do we really want to tell everyone everything? Whatever a map's attitude toward blanks within its borders, virtually everything is left off of a map and must be for it to be useful. No map can show everything, Dennis Wood argues. Could it, it would no more than reproduce the world, which, without the map, we already have. It is only its selection from the world's overwhelming richness that justifies the map. One of the great breakthroughs in urban mapping came in 1933 when Henry Beck invented the Wayfinder for the London Underground. Until then, the map of the Underground was complete and accurate. That is, it preserved the distance and direction of the train lines, listed all the stops and neighborhoods, etc. But that comprehensiveness and accuracy, always in quotation marks, accuracy, made the map unusable. Beck's innovation was to color code the lines, reduce them to a few angles, and label only the stops. 
A subway rider doesn't care whether he's traveling northwest or north-northwest. We don't care whether the next stop is three-quarters of a mile away or seven-eighths of a mile. We just want to know what line to get on and when to get off. More information would not make that particular map better for that audience and purpose. If we're working on the subway line, that metro map is perfectly useless, of course. That won't help us get to where we need to work underground. Beck's map has been adopted all over the world, including here in Montreal, despite the fact that it omits almost everything about the city and is deliberately distorted. No map is objective. As Dennis Wood says, the selection of a map projection is always to choose among competing interests, to take a point of view. Here are two maps of the campus where I work. Like all maps, these are outdated. The one on the left looks official or authoritative thanks to the fact that it's drawn in straight lines and machine-made as opposed to hand-drawn, but it is absolutely biased and narrowly focused. It happens to be a map of construction projects on campus. It's a map of buildings and roads made by the people interested in buildings and roads. The map on the right was drawn by my son when he was 13. It's a map of the best street losing runs on campus. I don't know how well you can see that. The red road is uh, Warren Wilson Road, the main road through campus, which is very steep, and it happens to be marked there with an icon of a face with X's for eyes and his tongue hanging out, because the street luge on it would be death. Uh, The dotted lines represent uh, good places to street luge. A few buildings are uh, on the map, as is a representative pig and an ear of corn representing the farm. The uh, mapmaker's mother's office appears on this map, the mapmaker's father's office does not. <laughs> anyway, all maps show uh, the bias of their maker. There are other maps of our campus, one of trails, one of visitor parking spaces, one of the various fields on the farm. All the farmers need to know what the fields are and when they're used for what. No one of them is more objective or accurate than the other, although they're all accurate in light of their implicit intentions, and they're all useful for their intended audiences. A moment ago, I said it can be hard to get lost because we tend to get distracted by our misguided beliefs in comprehensiveness, objectivity, and accuracy. Perhaps I should say it's harder to get lost if we insist on aiming for any preconceived notion of comprehensiveness, objectivity, or accuracy. Those terms always need to be defined in light of our intention. James Boswell described Samuel Johnson... Richard already invoked, as a grown man lying on his side and tumbling down a hill like a child. Maybe you can still remember spinning in circles as a kid just to make yourself dizzy to experience the novelty of disorientation. Or maybe the one I saw at midnight last night coming home from the bar. The child's game of peekaboo is, the child psychologists tell us, like most games, a safe recreation of our fear of being lost. Because truly being lost can be terrifying, Being lost within some controlled environment can be exhilarating and, yes, informative. This is not such an unconventional map. It's a cartogram. Uh, If you could read the text uh, on this uh, not-quite-in-focus scan, uh, you'd be able to understand how to use this map pretty easily. It shows that at the time it was made, the uh, world's population was... Uh, six billion each square on the grid represents a million people. You can see that the cartographers attempted to uh, maintain the general shape of as many countries as they could so that we could find our way around on the map. They did do a very very clever job of coloring this map. It's since been remade for that reason. Um, You can see the United States over there. Canada has been uh, now uh, reduced to a kind of banner headline on top of the United States. And uh, I know there's at least one person here from New Zealand, which unfortunately has become a grid or two out in the middle of the ocean. 
over by Australia in uh, Lilac. But we can figure out how to find our way around this map uh, fairly easily. It's strange, but quickly becomes familiar. Looking back at this map, you can see how the immediate surprise comes from its defying just two conventions. It tur- turns the world on its thick head, and it recenters it. These next two maps were created to instruct the viewer in very specific ways. You can decide whether they're effective. This now famous image from the late 19th century was created to make it easy to compare the lengths of the world's longest rivers and the heights of the world's tallest mountains. This scan from the book isn't quite as clear as it should be. In the original, you can read the names and the numbers. The departure from the convention seems obvious once we see it. Why insist on showing those rivers in their context if what we really want to be able to do is to compare them? Why not put them side by side? This is a wonderful map for that one purpose, though it would make a terribly dangerous hiking map. Here's a map from an old encyclopedia. The map wants to depict for us the enormity of the Mississippi River Basin by showing that all the rainfall between the continental divides flows into the Mississippi, and that, as it says, the river's maximum discharge is 138 million cubic feet per minute. So could fill a barrel the height of New York's 58-story high Woolworth building, depicted next to the barrel, every minute. But I'm afraid the average schoolboy might only have gotten from this map a disturbing image of New Orleans. All of these maps are demonstrations of particular visions, specific views of the world that are, in one way or another, surprising. The surprise is part of the delight, and the surprise and delight inspire us to think, if only for a moment, a little differently about what we see. In the art of the novel, the Czech novelist Milan Kundera writes, These days, music can be composed by computer, but there is always a kind of computer present in composers' heads. In a pinch, they could compose a sonata without a single original idea, simply by following the rules of composition. Roughly the same idea applies to the novel. It, too, is weighted down by technique, by the conventions that do the author's work for him. Present a character, describe a milieu, bring the action into an historical situation, fill time in the character's lives with superfluous episodes... My own imperative is to rid the novel of the automatism of novelistic technique. If you ask me for a roadmap from Montreal to Asheville, North Carolina, where I live, and I said I'd give you one, but first I wanted to cut it up, turn the pieces in different directions, and staple them together, you might think I don't want you to visit. But the first national road atlas looked like this. Actually, it wasn't colored. This is a page from the first road atlas of Great Britain, Ogilby's Britannia. It's made in 1675. John Ogilby is an interesting fellow. He was a dancer. He hurt himself. He became a dance instructor. Later in life, he became an insurance adjuster after the Great Fire, and as a result of that, became interested in in real estate and so mapping. Uh, Ogilby uh, realized relatively early on in the game that roads were becoming a permanent feature of the landscape and that people were beginning to define the landscape uh, by them. This is almost hard to remember now, But, of course, then a permanent feature of the landscape might be a boulder or a waterfall or a very old oak tree. Ogilby realized times were changing and that people were moving through the landscape by roads and that what they wanted was a collection of the roads themselves so they could get, as they would from this map, from London, which is at the lower left, to Oxford, which is at the upper right. Uh, Strip maps had existed before Ogilby, and certainly there were roads long before Ogilby, and people had had to make maps of roads. Nonetheless, uh, to make this sort of atlas uh, was so unconventional, was so innovative, that he had to teach people how to use it. 
In the introduction, he tells the reader to imagine that he or she is holding an imaginary scroll. And he had his artist draw, as you can see in the bottom left and the upper right, uh, evidence of a scroll being unwound. And then he said you read from the bottom of the leftmost strip up to the top, and then from the bottom of the next strip up to the top, and so on, to get where you're going. There is a compass rose giving the orientation on each strip. You can see it there. It changes orientation only slightly uh, on this particular page, more dramatically than others. But again, it doesn't matter for this particular map what direction you're heading. What you want to know is how to get from London to Oxford. You want to know where the road goes. Every writer in the room, or everybody with proprietary interest in anything at all, uh, will sympathize to hear that uh, Ogilby's book was immediately pirated and republished as Ogilby Improved. It was improved by being made smaller so you could carry it with you when you traveled. I'm also interested in this uh, image uh, because it says something, I'll use this as a reminder to Dick, of the power of metaphor. Uh, Perhaps some of you uh, read scrolls here, depending on your religious beliefs and depending on where you are in the world. But of course, all of us use scrolls every day. We still scroll up and scroll down. It turns out to be a terribly useful metaphor for help, to help us uh, negotiate those uh, little flashes of light on the screen in front of us all day. Even though part of our brain knows there's no information hovering just above or below our computer screen. The challenge for cartographers mapping the Earth is that, as Ptolemy noted in 130, when the Earth is delineated on a sphere, it has a shape like its own without need of altering. But to transfer that sphere to a flat sheet of paper requires a certain adjustment. If you're as old as I am, you may have seen this referred to in a textbook as the orange peel problem. To address that challenge of mapping the surface of an oblate spheroid onto a plane, Ptolemy devised what is considered the first scientific cartographic projection. In 1569, Gerardus Mercator devised one of the most famous cartographic projections, one which allowed sailors to use a straight edge to plot a course over the major trade routes of his day and which dominated popular mapmaking for centuries despite its gross distortions. It famously represents Greenland as the size of South America, even though South America is nine times larger. There is no one accurate cartographic projection for all purposes. There are only projections that are accurate for particular purposes. Similarly, visual artists confront conventions of illusion and have at least since the first cave paintings. Just as cartographers continue to tweak existing projections, visual artists, composers, and writers have invented variations on forms and even invented new forms. Poets have the haiku, the sonnet, the villanelle, the tonka, the gazel, the guzzle, and many other forms. Fiction writers are, for the most part, without strictly defined forms. And while that might seem liberating, some days it can be, as Frost is famously said to have said of free verse poetry, like playing tennis without a net. The poet Richard Gabriel told me yesterday, in the luxury of his expansive hotel suite, that the biggest challenge now, after seven or eight years, to his poem-a-day practice is to make it harder. God only knows exactly what he meant by that, but it's often the case that after we struggle for fluency, for a control of our materials, for a thorough knowledge of our tools, for dexterous use of our techniques, that it's tremendously difficult to surrender what we've learned to do well or to see beyond it. Exhibit A, Ernest Hemingway, who finished his career writing unintentional parodies of himself. Tony Hoagland, the poet I referred to earlier, talks about redeployment, the challenge any mature or successful artist faces when he or she tries to do something different. The odds are good, try anything new, that will fail, and we don't like to fail. But let's assume that we want to get lost. We want to get out of earshot of the highway, away from the roads, away from the campsites. 
What's the equivalent of spinning around in circles? One example comes to us from the ULUPO, the French-based but international workshop of potential literature. Members of the ULUPO set themselves the goal of creating new literary forms or methods of text generation. Many of them are formulaic, such as substitution formulas. You take, say, The Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller's play, look up every word of the play in the OED, and replace each word in the play with, say, the seventh word following it in the dictionary. Maybe you know Alphabetical Africa, the Walter Abish novel that adopts the following constraint. All the words in the first chapter begin with the letter A, all the words in the second with A or B, etc. The 26th chapter can include words, any words, and the 27th through the 52nd chapters remove first words beginning with Z, then words beginning with Y, etc. These and many other such strategies result in work which is, according to the members of the Ulipo themselves, tedious. And in fact, they are more interested, for the most part, in creating methods for generating text than actually creating texts. But members of the Ulipo have created some brilliant work that isn't quite like anything else, including Georges Perec's novel Life, a User's Manual, and more notoriously his novel Avoid, which avoids the letter E. And Italo Calvino produced, among many other books, a novel called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, in which every other chapter is the first chapter of a new novel, each written in a different style. That book begins... You're about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. It goes on to tell us to make ourselves comfortable, adjust the light, put our feet up, etc. Then it acknowledges that this book, so far, seems a bit strange. It continues, Perhaps at first you feel a bit lost, but then you go on and you realize that the book is readable nevertheless, independently of what you expected of the author. It's the book in itself that arouses your curiosity. In fact, on sober reflection, you prefer it this way confronting something and not quite knowing yet what it is. As readers, we are content, even delighted to be lost, in the sense that we're both absorbed and uncertain of where we are or where we're going. When we say we're lost in a book, we're offering high praise. We mean we've been transported from the ordinary, removed from the routine. Our prerequisite for finding our way through any story or novel is to be lost. The journey can't begin until we've been set down somewhere unfamiliar. And part of a reader's willingness to be led is a willingness to be betrayed, outwitted, jumped from behind. Like the main character in John Barth's Lost in the Funhouse, a young writer in the making, we envision a truly astonishing funhouse, incredibly complex, yet utterly controlled. Calvino's novel is disorienting and, to some readers, frustrating. The second chapter appears to be the beginning of the novel. But then the authorial voice steps in again in the third chapter, and the fourth chapter is the beginning of another novel, and on and on it goes. The novel is ultimately, and among other things, about our desire to enter imaginary worlds. Barth's story is about his young narrators feeling overwhelmed by all the possibilities for narrative within a relatively ordinary trip to the beach. Both pieces challenge readerly expectations, but ultimately guide us with a sure hand. What sometimes surprises students of poetry and fiction writing but I suspect we'll surprise no one here, is the fact that formal constraints are liberating. Also, that work that operates at a high level of abstraction can be highly accessible. For instance, the map of the world that serves as the board for the game Risk is curious. The United States is divided in two. France, Spain, and Portugal are replaced by Western Europe, and Urkatsk is oddly prominent. But we can use it to play the game. An even more popular game uses a stranger map. This map of Atlantic City was never accurate, and it isn't useful for any purpose beyond the buying and selling of real estate under certain rules. 
But in that context, it has been one of the most successful and useful maps ever made. We may not think of this as an abstraction until we remember that a chessboard or a checkers board is actually a map of two kingdoms engaged in highly formalized battle. This is a reminder that despite what they might say, nearly everyone can operate at a very high level of abstraction. And in fact, our games and other products of popular culture, such as sitcoms, are often much more ritualized and formally structured than, that we, than what we think of as high art. Roadrunner cartoons, for example, are governed by a series of formal constraints established by animator Chuck Jones, among them. The roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep, beep. No outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude or the failure of Acme products. <laughs> the coyote could stop any time if he were not a fanatic. Repeat, a fanatic is one who redoubles his effort when he has forgotten his aim, George Santayana. The roadrunner must stay on the road. Otherwise, logically, he would not be called roadrunner. All materials, tools, weapons, or mechanical conveniences must be obtained from the Acme Corporation. And my favorite of these artificial constraints, all action must be confined to the natural environment of the two characters, the Southwest American desert. The natural environment of these two... If anyone has ever seen a roadrunner, I think there's one here at the uh, zoo... If anyone has ever seen a roadrunner, you know this doesn't much resemble one. And if you've seen a coyote, you know this is a pretty fanciful coyote, although Jones did all his uh, studying, uh, his drawing from life. Yet in the world of roadrunner cartoons, it felt important to him that uh, these characters exist in a highly stylized version of the Southwest. All the roadrunner cartoons seem to happen in uh, Arches National Park, if you've ever been there. Jones also had various rules that applied to the drawing. For instance, he never reused footage, which is amazing given how many cartoons he was responsible for. And he famously noted that animals run differently when they're chasing something than when they're being chased. And so each chase had to be recreated, something you'd never know, for instance, by watching Scooby-Doo, where footage is reused all the time. In the heyday of Looney Tunes, each cartoon was six minutes long. That worked out to 540 feet of film or 4,320 frames. Movement, pacing, and rhythm were discussed in terms of frames. Wally Coyote's fall from a cliff required 18 frames for the fall and disappearance, then 14 frames until he hit. Poof. It seemed to me 13 frames didn't work in terms of humor, Jones said. Neither did 15. 14 frames got a laugh. <laughs> the effect was calculated to within one twelfth of a second. Chuck Jones, if you've ever read anything by him, also famously said it's easy to draw a Bugs Bunny. You just draw a carrot and then draw a rabbit around it. I offer that as an example of how self-imposed constraints can lead to discovery. Because if you watch the Chuck Jones Roadrunner cartoons, you see how, despite or because of all the rules he created for himself, he and his colleagues created new variations on the chase. The deeper they went into the very strictly defined Roadrunner world they created, the more they found. My final two examples, visual examples anyway, are beautiful simplicity. Anish Kapoor was commissioned to create a sculpture or installation for Chicago's Millennium Park. Specifically, he was charged with creating a piece that would sit in the large plaza outside the new outdoor concert venue. What he created is a sort of interactive map. Some people call it the bean. Some call it an egg or a pod. Its actual title is Cloudgate. It's simply a rounded arch, like something you might make out of silly putty on a grand scale. At 60 feet long, it's big enough to walk through like a tunnel, and its silver surface is reflective, as you can see. 
I've been to Chicago four times since it was installed in summer and winter, during the day and at night, and every time that sculpture has been surrounded by people of all ages, laughing and making faces and taking pictures, engaging with it in every way they can think of. They don't just look at it and move on. They hang around because the shape distorts their reflections in a number of ways, and it distorts and reflects the skyline and the sky itself. (coughs) Like the best site-specific art, it redefines the place it inhabits. By doing so, it says, imagine yourself in all these different ways. It says, look again. It says, imagine that a 110-ton mass of polished stainless steel with absolutely no practical function can give thousands of strangers pleasure every day. That's Anish Kapoor. The artist's version of Cloudgate's story is this. What I wanted to do in Millennium Park is make something that would engage the Chicago skyline so that one will see the clouds kind of floating in with those very tall buildings reflected in the work. And then, since it is in the form of a gate, the participant, the viewer, will be able to enter into this very deep chamber that does, in a way, the same thing to one's reflection as the exterior of the piece is doing to the reflection of the city around. The achievement of the piece is to make the familiar strange. The people who look into it can see themselves every day at home in the mirror, and the skyline they can see reflected in it has been there more or less the same for years, but now they're encouraged to see it in themselves differently with the light. Now they can get lost in the middle of a plaza, in the middle of the city, some of them have lived in all their lives. Maybe you need to be there, and maybe it would help if I could fly you out to Norway with me for this next example. I happen to be intrigued by this piece because it illustrates a solution to a particular writerly problem. The problem for writers, realistic writers anyway, is this. Human beings are complex, and to present any individual in any one way is almost always to oversimplify. It's the problem every biographer faces, too. To make a coherent whole out of anyone's life story, you end up emphasizing some things, de-emphasizing others, creating another sort of distortion formula. So we have Jefferson the architect, Jefferson the inventor, Jefferson the statesman, Jefferson the farmer, etc., because it's so difficult to write about Jefferson. But certain books manage to create what I call unresolved characters, characters who remain elusive even though their stories are satisfying. F. Scott Fitzgerald's J. Gatsby is one. That book's narrator, Nick Carraway, is another. We're told any number of conflicting things about each of them, and even by the end of the book, we can't say that any one vision of the character is right while the others are wrong. What we're left with instead is the mystery of complexity. Several years ago, the Norwegian government sponsored an international competition for outdoor sculpture and site-specific art, the winners of which would have their work placed in remote northern Norway. But if you've been there, you know that's a redundancy. Several of the installations are challenging to find, and several were designed to deteriorate. There was one in particular I wanted to see because I'd seen two photographs of it that seemed to contradict each other. Here's a picture of it to give you a sense of its scale and also where it is. It's in a quite beautiful but quite isolated place. The bust called Head is near the southern tip of the Lofoten Islands off the western coast. To see it, you need to take a boat to the Lofotans. There's no airport. You need to drive to the end of a rural road, and then you need to walk on that uh, path that you see there for about half a mile. The bust is made of stone, so it's held up nicely that the birds have gotten to it. Before I show you this video, we'll see if it works, I should say that my son took this as a vacation video, so it's not at all professional. And if I had ever imagined that I was going to show it to so many people, we would have certainly put our clothes on. The first thing you notice is that depending on where you stand, the head can be either right side up or upside down. 
But those are the views from just four vantage points. From others, you get views of the sculpture that don't clearly depict a head at all. If we take a single photograph of this character, he's clear, still, easily understandable. If we view him from all sides, he's mysterious and, I think, enchanting. If this were in the middle of Chicago, I'm sure it would draw a crowd. As it is standing on a bit of seaside pasture on a small island off the coast of Norway, we felt we had discovered unearthed treasure. I want to end as uh, advertised by saying something about happy accident, because I don't want to make it seem as if uh, getting lost is entirely a conscious process. Of course, it's more, or at least as much, a willingness and a tolerance. Uh, even as premeditated and scheming a writer as Vladimir Nabokov, uh, a man who called his characters galley slaves and his settings stage sets, acknowledged the role of the unconscious. He said, All I know is that at a very early stage of a novel's development, I get this urge to garner bits of straw and fluff, to eat pebbles. When I remember afterwards the force that made me jot down the correct names of things or the inches and tints of things, even before I actually needed the information, I'm inclined to assume that what I call, for want of a better term, inspiration, had been already at work, mutely pointing at this or that, having me accumulate the known materials for an unknown structure. There comes a moment when I am informed from within that the entire structure is finished. All I have to do now is take it, take it down in pencil or pen. All I have to do. Nabokov spoke of the precision of poetry and the excitement of pure science. The greater one's science, he said, the deeper the sense of mystery. And just because I am the representative of the 18th century, I'll close with a quotation by Robert Louis Stevenson a writer from an earlier century, but another one who advocated both careful planning and an openness to happy accident, the happy accident particularly that planning can produce. Stevenson tells a long, sad story in an essay about his creation of the map for, let's see if it's here, Treasure Island. He was uh, recuperating, as you probably know, uh, from one of his many illnesses. When he went out to draw, he happened to draw a map. He was enchanted by it, so he went home and started telling stories about a map, He kept talking and talking. He stole bits from other books, which he acknowledged after the fact. Uh, He got stuck at one point, thought he was done, but managed to push forward, finish the book we know as Treasure Island, uh, and he sent it off to his publisher. This is, of course, before the days of faxes or emails, but it is very much during the day of uh, poor mail service. And uh, he only found out in conversation and communication with his publisher that the map had somehow gotten lost in transit, so it was gone. But he really couldn't imagine the novel without the map, since that's what had inspired him to, uh, to make the book. And so he started over, but this time he had to create the map from the data in the novel, which he found a painstaking and laborious process. And so he writes pretty sadly that the map that we all know as the map of Treasure Island is not the map of Treasure Island to him and never was. Nonetheless, he argued that writers should always map out the worlds of their works. He said, it's my contention that who is faithful to his map and consults it and draws from it his inspiration daily and hourly gains positive support. Even with imaginary places, he'll do well in the beginning to provide a map. As he studies it, relations will appear that he had not thought upon. He will discover obvious, though unsuspected, shortcuts and footprints for his messengers. His map will be found to be a mine of suggestion. That's what this conference is meant to be, of course, a mine of suggestion. It means to send us spinning off in some direction we never would have gone otherwise. And so I'll end by urging all of you sincerely to get lost. Thanks.
Dick thought uh, it might be possible that someone would have a question. Uh, it's probably more likely someone will have an answer or a correction. Uh, but if you have any of those things, I'm happy to hear them. So we have these, um, we have these microphones if you want to try asking a question. Brian Foote, uh, this will be a real trip for you. Okay. Some of us get to get lost every day for a living. Uh -huh. And the place where we get to get lost is a place that looks like that punch card jungle that you used to live in when you wrote your, Fo your Fortran programs. They still look a whole lot like the same 1950s alphabet soup that you saw when you were writing Fortran. And they're an incredibly easy place to get lost. Um, the question I wanted to ask you is, is there something that we can steal from somewhere else to help us better navigate that space that might as well be one that we walk around practically blindfolded in? You know what programs look like. What else that you've looked at from exploring cardiography could we steal so that we can find our way around that stuff better? I guess the first answers that, that leap to mind are, are those things that I referred to before as either the equivalent of cartographic projections or, or forms, the kind of templates that lie in front of us, although I know you work within those too. Um, uh, Stephen Dobbins, a writer that uh, uh, worked with Richard and who has uh, written wonderfully well on poetry and fiction writing, uh, talks about a writer being guided by intention while acknowledging that the intention is in, is in a state of constant change, that we're always discovering our intention as we work. So uh, it's a little bit uh, like uh, setting out stepping stones for yourself across a river and constantly having to go back and get new stones or finding out that you need to replace them. So off the top of my head, the equivalent of, uh, the equivalent of tradition, uh, cartographic projections, and forms, I guess, are the uh, sorts of things I would look to for methods of navigating through the unknown. It's not a particularly interesting answer, I realize, but it's the one that leaps to mind. Yeah? I think your uh, discussion of maps was an excellent example of creating models say, on the real world, sure. and uh, basically you say that the only true model is the real world itself. In object-oriented programming, we deal a lot with modeling, so, so I wonder if you could have any thoughts about generalizing this thing on maps for modeling in general. I think, I think the, uh, the work we're engaged in is similar. I mean, uh, fiction writers uh, are world creators as well. So to some extent, we're either trying to represent what we see in front of us or trying to work variations on it. And I don't just mean in the forms of utopias or, or dysutopias, but always trying to imagine uh, a variant on the world. In fact, although I know I've already quoted quite a lot, I'll offer one more quotation. Milan Kundera again says, a novel examines not reality but existence, and existence is not what has occurred. Existence is the realm of human possibilities, everything man can become, everything he's capable of, which would include, of course, theoretical models and other sorts of models. Novelists draw up the map of existence by discovering this or that human possibility. Kundera's great frustration was that so often, or is that so often in his life anyway, these are realistic models that they look a lot alike and they look a lot like the world that we're already in. And Kundera wanted to push against that. He had various formal concerns, his various uh, uh, moral and political concerns too, uh, of course. Um, I'm not sure that those are, are different kinds of models, but it certainly uh, offers some evidence of the wide variety of models. 
Uh, the, I've shown, as people have pointed out to me when I uh, talk about these, I've shown only selections from one very narrow kind of map. They're all you know, Euclidean maps. They're all maps on paper, when, of course, you all deal with uh, three-dimensional and perhaps four-dimensional maps all the time. In fact, four-dimensional maps are some of the most interesting ones being made these days. So we're constantly you know, using uh, models to try to expand our understanding of the possibilities for human existence, as Kundera says. If your son or a little child were to ask you what is reality, what would your answer be? <laughs> reality right here, right now, I'd tell my son, straighten up. <laughs> Although now he's six foot four, so I can't tell him much of anything. <clears throat> I guess uh, uh, without taking it too far, I believe in uh, largely a uh, an experiential reality, which may seem a little odd since I also uh, depend so much and am so intrigued in works of the imagination. I do believe uh, that what, what maps, what programs, what access to the web, what writing offers us is an expanded kind of experience, though, which is every bit as important and useful to us as the tactile experience of you know, touching this podium or seeing the sights in this room. Uh, Eudora Welty has a beautiful quotation I won't uh, try to find right now about uh, parting a curtain between uh, the reader and the world that she's writing about. And she said it's never to expose some other people as flawed or to show a superiority of another people for her, for Eudora Welty, but that it's uh, parting a curtain so that we may understand others in a very different way. And it seemed like, uh, I think that's a a very generous and a large-hearted view of what fiction can do, but of course it's not exclusive to fiction or the arts. Um, so I think actually my son has developed a sense of reality that uh, wonderfully includes uh, poetry and fiction. God knows it uh, includes text messaging. Last time I checked their bill, he sends 500 and some text messages a day. Um, his reality is an expansive one, and these, this day and age it seems important for, for us to uh, be aware of the the largest, most complex reality we can, I think. These are impossible questions. Yes. Okay. The, uh, when you talk about maps, when we talk about maps, we always think of the, these as being, uh, representing maybe some kind of useful complexity in the world or useful complexity in, in, uh, in literature. Uh, you cited... Uh, one of my favorite writers, Jorge Luis Borges, who I associate less with maps and more with labyrinths. Yeah, sure. Which and is a kind of map, right? Which is a, which is a kind of map, but is also not necessarily seen by everybody as useful complexity, but as being kind of challenging complexity or frivolous complexity or something like that. I mean, in literature and in software, do we sometimes create something that is unnecessarily elaborate? Well, I mean, you've, you've provided the answer. Uh, but, but I am intrigued by this notion, and I don't think labyrinths are not useful. Um, I, I recently gave a lecture for writers on puzzles and mysteries, uh, taking as one of my source texts uh, Gregory Trevertin's book on military intelligence, uh, where he defines that, uh, uh, puzzles versus mystery. Uh, you know, puzzles, puzzles being... Uh, 
uh, those things which uh, eventually involve uh, finding out secrets, finding out information. We know there's information to discover, and so we assemble the information, whereas the mystery finally depends on unknowns. Uh, I believe puzzles are a source of great delight, and actually in part of the lecture I talk about uh, the strange hypnotic power of Sudoku. Uh, I mean, you can barely fly in a plane these days without seeing Sudoku addicts hard at work, uh, you know, or solitaire addicts, which are, essentially <laughs> which are essentially the same thing. Interestingly enough, Ben Franklin worked a version of Magic Squares or, or what has become uh, Sudoku. They've been with us for a long time, and all kinds of interesting people, they've been enchanted by him. And I think the working of puzzles, although sometimes if we're embarrassed, we're caught doing them. You know, an architect, right? In Indiana, I think, architect uh, designed what we know as Sudoku, and he did it on the side, and his fellow architects gave him grief about it. Um, I think that while they might seem frivolous and we might be embarrassed by them, that that kind of puzzle solving, of course, is a kind of modeling for the larger puzzle solving solving we're doing on a different scale. As I said, too, I think there's something reassuring about being in, say, a garden labyrinth, the traditional English garden labyrinth, knowing that somebody knows the answer. I mean, you can get out of the thing. Whereas if I go out into Montreal at midnight, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get out. I hope so, but I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where we were. Back here? Hi. Okay. Hello. Yes. In reflective programming languages, the map is actually made up of elements, and these elements are connected to the representation of the actual elements, and both can impact the other. So have you seen other such maps? Say, say something else about that. So help me. So you have uh, base elements, and they have representation in the map. And this representation, when you change the representation, you actually have an influence on the base elements themselves, and vice versa. So this is a, a map where the representation is connected to the elements themselves. So I was wondering, have you encountered other such maps? <coughs> I'm sure there are some. I can't uh, immediately call one to mind. I know there's somebody uh, speaking here, uh, I think Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, on hypertext, and I believe that might be a kind of equivalent to it, a participatory uh, sort of sort of text where the elements are con in constant flux. But off the top of my head, I don't have that map on hand. Maybe somebody in the room does? A map equivalent of that? I'm sorry. Um, it occurs to me both in software and in writing, the maps that we create have a disturbing tendency to become the reality as software creators, we write software and we impose our will, consciously or unconsciously, on the poor users of the software. In literature, there's a rather famous example of, of the, the author Goethe, who wrote the short novel, The Sufferings of Young Werther, about a mentally unbalanced adolescent, wait, that's redundant, isn't it, um, who goes off and eventually kills himself at the end of the book, this created no small sensation among the, 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 the teens of the age who began to walk like Werther, talk like Werther, dress like Werther, and ultimately commit suicide like Werther. Um, I'd like to hear your comments on the responsibility that we have when we recognize that our models may impose a, a force on the reality of the people who use them. That's not a frivolous uh, question, and so I don't want to make it seem as if I regard it as one, but I, I believe so strongly in the, uh, in the freedoms of the artist and actually the responsibilities of the artist that 
uh, I suppose I feel that unless uh, you know the art itself is doing someone uh, deliberate and immediate harm, then the responsibility is shared between artist and and reader. Um, we certainly, I mean, we hear all the time about uh, young people, particularly, but it could be anyone, of course, uh, who's influenced by whether it's a rock song or a movie or a TV show or you know a great work of literature, uh, and who. Uh, imitates it as opposed to understanding that it's a it's a fictional world to inhabit or it's a temporary world or you know Alice Cooper is now going around talking about his bad old days and apparently he's he's straightened up and he has you know good advice for people but even in the days of bad old Alice Cooper or good old Alice Cooper depending um, <laughs> he he made it very clear that it was all a stage show that it was an all an entertainment and act and that he was inhabiting that role and I couldn't. I mean, I wasn't in love with Alice Cooper of any means, but but I couldn't find him responsible for other people who might, you know, decide to be devil worshippers or play with snakes or whatever um, because of that. So I don't think that uh, the artist has no responsibilities, but I do think uh, the artist has uh, responsibilities most largely to to the work, to what he or she is trying to create and do, and that uh, the work is really put out into the world. And at that point, readers, viewers, users. Uh, have responsibilities as well. It's it's not a simple issue, though, and I don't mean to oversimplify. Uh, this audience uh, that you're talking to today uh, fancies itself to be innovative and creative, yeah. and over the past several decades, they have approached metaphor as a way to foster that kind of innovation creativity, yeah. but they have always ultimately retreated from it, had difficulties from it, in the introduction, it was noticed that Dick also was noted as having some potential problems with metaphor. Could you reflect briefly uh, on how this audience might try to start confronting and dealing with, with metaphor, how they could actually engage with it and make it useful to them, prefer using Dick as an exemplar so that your answer preferably <laughs> embarrasses him as much as possible? <laughs> with pleasure. Um, well, Dick is actually a great example, and I, I know he's not, uh, he's not alone in this, in this crowd because I've had a chance to talk to a few of you. But here's a, here's a man with a certain level of expertise and authority in auto repair. I don't know if you know that. That's what I was talking about, though. No, a certain expertise and, and authority in a field who, who uh, was willing to make himself a student in a completely different uh, field again, and it's not an easy thing to do, no joke, um, whether it's it's to coming to a poetry workshop surrounded, I mean, our students are older than the average, the average age of our students is 37, but nonetheless, they hadn't, most of them, achieved the kinds of things that Dick had achieved uh, when he joined us, and you all know, I think, how difficult it is to, to turn around and assume the role of student after having been in the role of teacher and guide uh, for so long, but there's also a great pleasure to it, and, and uh, we find ways, or we ideally find ways to become students in new ways, and one of the reasons that as a writer, I find myself grasping for new metaphors. It was maps for the longest time. Now I've moved on to look at, at visual arts, and as I said uh, very recently, uh, different kinds of puzzles and metaphors. I've been looking at chess problems lately, because uh, because that's a way to approach the work at a glance or from a different perspective. And so almost always the tension between the metaphor and the thing, between uh, uh, you know the the object of the metaphor. 
the tension between the two things being compared is always abrasive at some point. You find the limits of the metaphor, and that uh, recognizing those limitations uh, helps you to understand what it is that the two things are distinctly in addition to, to what qualities they might share. And so uh, I suppose as, you know, who am I to offer this sort of advice, but I suppose the advice would simply be uh, to take our dear friend Dick Gabriel as, as a model and continue to pursue, you know, disparate hobbies and interests, but to wed them uh, to the work that you're doing. And sometimes, of course, it's the most freeing thing when you're pounding your head against a problem, you know, pound, 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 to try to figure out the structure for a particular story. And then I turn to something completely different, whether I said it's maps or something else, and I start to be able to, I start to conceive of at least different ways to approach it. So I would go farther afield. That's my own habit of mind, and so that's what I'd recommend, to adapt anything you find in the world to the kind of organization and structure of information that you're involved in creating. Thanks. Uh, Do you want me to wash the car when I'm done? (laughs) Okay, so let's thank Pete Searchy. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla Podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla Conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla Podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla Podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>